Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This month we continue the three-episode miniseries season of Ray's Haunted 50s, looking at the films of Nicholas Ray and their connections to Twin Peaks. And today we will be discussing Rebel Without a Cause, which is certainly the most famous of Nicholas Ray's films, and one where at least the um, aesthetic connection, or I guess the design connection, to Twin Peaks is evident right away. And we'll discuss that, particularly connecting to uh, the pilot and the film Firewalk with me. Uh, There'll also be a lot of discussion before I even get to that, just of the film itself, because there's a lot to dig into here, especially given my interest in generations and eras and zeitgeists and all of that. This was certainly a defining film in that regard. Before we start the main discussion, uh, here's an update on my other podcast work in the past month since the previous Twin Peaks Cinema episode, uh, which covered On Dangerous Ground, uh, early 50s noir by Nicholas Ray. So since then, on the Lost in the Movies feed, I've continued my classic Hollywood focus of the summer and fall. It's going to go into the fall as well. This was on the film Monkey Business, Cary Grant, Marilyn Monroe, Ginger Rogers, directed by Howard Hawks. Uh, comedy, which I feel like I don't discuss comedies as much. Uh, I was certainly not on the Twin Peaks cinema, but also just in general. Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, some of it I found funnier than other parts, I guess. And on uh, Patreon for a dollar a month, I uh, provided my uh, July podcast, uh, some updates on my activity, archive reading of a review I wrote a long time ago on Lady and the Tramp, and then as the main feature The film in focus was Coffee and Cigarettes, a Jim Jarmusch film from about 20 years ago, an anthology sketch movie that uh, I uh, saw kind of unexpectedly and enjoyed and had some thoughts about. And as far as the Twin Peaks conversations go, this podcast where I have half on YouTube and then half or more on on Patreon, uh, this month I talked to Jubal Brousseau and Carl Eckler, hosts of the Counter Esperanto podcast, where they talk about Twin Peaks and weird fiction like H.P. Lovecraft. So great discussion there. You can check that out. Links all, of course, in the show notes. Additionally, during this period, I was a guest on two podcasts. One was Obnoxious and Anonymous, uh, Cameron Cloutier, who I interviewed in June for my own podcast, who recently made the Twin Peaks fan film, uh, Queen of Hearts. He had me on to just discuss sort of random Twin Peaks topics, including some recent deaths of uh, actors in the series and uh, other things. And then a few days later, there was a conference, like an online conference. So I was actually on a panel of podcasters where we all talked about our work, what we do with Twin Peaks. That one was like a charity event, so you can still buy a ticket and get access not just to that panel, but I think dozens of different panels with actors and people Uh, involved with Twin Peaks or into Twin Peaks in various ways with things to say. So really interesting event organized there. That was called Wyndham's Cabin. So I'll link uh, both of those below or at least the uh, posts on my site, um, you know, with the information on them. And uh, also with Lost in Twin Peaks, uh, I guess the last time I released a Twin Peaks cinema episode that was still ongoing, but I've paused it now. I finished the week of episodes on season three part 10 and then I paused and I'll resume season three around November probably I'm working on it behind the scenes but it uh, just couldn't keep up that pace and uh, there, there was an announcement that went up on the feed about it so I'll link that as well okay and now for Rebel Without a Cause and uh, after my uh, 
review or discussion of it, there's also going to be some feedback that I read. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into. It's no place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Girls don't love their father. Since when? Since I got to be 16? Stop that! I love you, Jim. I really mean it. No! No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved! We are all involved! Rebel Without a Cause came out in 1955. It's directed by Nicholas Ray, and it is the story of Jim Stark, a high schooler whose family moves around all the time because he keeps getting in trouble. So they're kind of always running to the next place and trying to find a place where he can uh, thrive, which they haven't found. He has issues with both of his parents. Uh, His mother is very domineering and his father is just seen as very acquiescent and weak by him and uh, they're out at some country club affair when he gets drunk and the movie opens with him lying on the ground uh, finding a little toy monkey and kind of tucking it in with a newspaper and lying next to it getting arrested and they pick him up at the police station while he's there two other people are there too judy who ran away from home at the at night and was found wandering the streets to the point where they even suggest, are you, are you looking for like a guy to pick you up or something? Are you, you know, I think they arrested her kind of on that pretense. And she is uh, feeling that her father doesn't love her anymore. He won't show her any affection. We get one dinner scene where she's trying to kiss him and he's really pushing her away. And uh, Plato is a boy who apparently shot a bunch of puppies, which is kind of glossed over. Uh, you know, he's played for sympathy throughout most of the film, but that's certainly not a very sympathetic way to introduce a character. And his parents are completely gone. He's wealthy. He's taken care of by a maid. And uh, his parents just send money from overseas and leave him. And he's kind of unpopular, uh, not no friends, um, isolated at school. And he meets, he is impressed by Jim at the station and befriends him. And so the next day they're all at school together and uh, he is really cozying up to Jim, trying to kind of become his friend. And meanwhile, Jim is pursuing Judy, and she is uh, somewhat responsive, but mostly giving him the cold cold shoulder so she can hang out with the cool gang at the school. They all go to the planetarium on a uh, field trip, and uh, after the showing, uh, Jim tries to make a joke, and uh, it doesn't... I I love the way this scene is handled. Some of the stuff in the film feels sort of dated or artificial in some way, But this exchange kind of resonates, I feel like, with how these social dynamics work, where they're making these wisecracks that aren't that funny. And then they have, uh, you know, they're showing the constellation of Taurus, the bull. And uh, James, uh, Jim just uh, makes a, you know, mooing sound. And it it is actually kind of funny. But they've all decided, you know, he's the kid that the new kid they don't like. So they start looking at him. Oh, a comedian. Oh. Real funny guy, you know, just like taking something that if one of them did, they would they would laugh at and turning it on him, showing him how isolated he is. So they get into a knife fight afterwards after they slash his tires and he gets cut up and they make a plan to do a chicky run that night. 
And so this is the most famous scene in the movie where they're out on this bluff overlooking the ocean and they, uh, him, uh, Jim and the leader of the gang get into their cars and they have a funny exchange before where the leader is kind of like, you know, I like you. He goes, well, why are we doing this? And he goes, well, you got to do something. And so they get into their cars. Uh, Judy waves them on and they go flying into the night towards hurtling toward the cliff. And whoever jumps out first is the chicken. And so they're waiting, waiting. It's, it's getting closer. Jim finally bails and the other guy can't get out because his sleeve is caught in the car. So he goes plummeting over the cliff and dies. And that sets everything else in the movie in motion because now all of these, you know, there's a huge crowd watching this. They've become uh, complicit in a crime, basically. So Jim goes home. He wants to go to the police. His parents tell him not to. One of many sequences in this film where there is a a kind of a uh, reversal of our expectations of who really is rebelling or following the rules or whatever here. And he ends up spending the rest of the film with Plato and Judy. They meet up again and they form this kind of impromptu family that night. All of them unsatisfied with their own family. They're almost like, you know, they're falling. Jim and Plato, are, or sorry, Jim and Judy are falling in love. Plato, who at the very least has a very admiring view of Jim, uh, is almost like their child in a way. And they go to this old abandoned mansion and spend the evening there and then in the morning, the gang comes, they get into a fight, Plato's shooting at them. Uh, he shoots one of them, I'm not sure if he kills him, it seems like he did, but they talk later like maybe he didn't, and he's running from the cops, and he ends up at the planetarium again, where they had the field trip, hiding inside, Jim coaxes him out, and then he's shot by the police on the steps, and Jim's father comes and takes him in his arms and walks off with him and is kind of now ready to be the the father figure for him. So that's the movie. That's the whole story. You're probably somewhat familiar with it. It's his contours. And this is a film that I think is much... It, it actually, the more you look at it, it has a very elegant plot. The the field trip to the planetarium set up, setting up the confrontation at the end, which the screenwriter spoken of as being a kind of a classical motif, like the sacrifice on the steps of the temple, basically, is Plato, who, of course, has a Greek name, at the end. And also just something that was pointed out in one of the uh, documentaries I watched about this afterwards, that uh, James Dean himself, who of course plays Jim, this movie is the essential part of his mythos. He died about a month before it came out. When he's sort of lying next to the little monkey, the toy monkey in the beginning of the film, and putting the newspaper over, tucking in, it's similar to how he zips up Plato's jacket at the end, or his jacket that he gave to Plato, as Plato is lying there dead at his feet and curling up next to him. And this was created by James Dean. On the, He suggested this idea with the, the monkey at the beginning, and the screenwriter was amazed. He's like, that's one of the best writing inventions, or whatever you want to call it, that I've ever seen, and it was come up with by the actor. So there, there's this elegant structure to it. The film has never totally worked for me, certainly not as well as some other Nicholas Ray films. There's a sort of a strange dynamic going on with this, the son and his parents, where he it's a very conservative rebellion which is interesting that's not really my issue necessarily with the film but it it does create this kind of awkward friction where it has this reputation of being this subversive masterpiece that kind of led to the 60s counterculture in some ways or at least foreshadowed it but uh, his frustration with his parents is kind of that they aren't authoritarian enough or at least that the father isn't the mother is too much so that he's not 
happy with their their playing of the gender roles you know there's a famous scene where the father is wearing a big frilly apron and bringing up food to the mother and jim just seems like humiliated by the whole scenario it's an interesting idea that in the post-war era which we now look back on as this paragon of conservatism and you know tradition the last bastion of traditional nuclear family roles that at the time it was viewed as already kind of disintegrating these these old forms of of family and authority and jim of course is the one who wants to go to the cops again this this strange reversal of our expectations where maybe the son is like trying to get out of trouble and the, or and the parents are like you have to do the right thing go to the police they're begging listen don't go and and, uh, you know, this is, you've got your whole life and you just think this through. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie is that scene, because there is, there's a truth to it. And the fact that it's a truth that flies in the face of what you'd think the cliche would be makes it all the more effective. So I kind of like that aspect of it. In some ways, the film is a victim of its own success as anything, which is, which, you know, gets some of its value from being on the edge of, of something, of anything, of a social phenomenon always is because it ends up getting surpassed sometimes by what it what it inspired so in the sense that this is a crystallization of teen rebellion of course it's going to seem very uh, in some ways conservative in some ways soft in some ways timid uh to, to later viewers particularly teenagers and i saw this for the first time when i was a teenager and i remember being somewhat disappointed actually by the second half i did like the first half i was kind of cable able to go along with some of the time capsule aspects of it i suppose and but but seeing this figure as this very poignant tragic soul and i knew where the film was going i'd read about it i'd seen clips and i knew that it would end with james dean flying off the cliff into the darkness into the night dying as 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 he in a way as he did in real life and of course that's not how the film ends and as soon as that chicky run scene came halfway through i was like oh this is coming much earlier than i thought and the other guy died and he went on it wasn't the film I had thought I was watching. And I, I was kind of horrible to say, but I was like disappointed by the fact that he was living for the rest of the film. And it, it, it seemed the melodrama seemed a little forced. All the stuff with them hanging out was like, it was going off the detour of what I kind of wanted and expected. And since then, actually, I think I've come a full 180. It's the film as a whole still doesn't totally work for me, but now it's more the beginning part, the first half, which feels a little forced and, uh, and, and and maybe not exactly trying a little too hard, but it's just it's its vision of of the teen edginess just doesn't quite resonate anymore. And it's the second half where the characters kind of go off of being teen archetypes and into their own psychodrama of their needs and coming together and discovering things on and also being haunted now by an actual trauma. So in the beginning, I think part of my frustration now as I'm watching, I was like, okay, so like he doesn't like that his parents buy him too many things and he's got this moody sort of pubescent frustration with everything and it it doesn't seem totally sympathetic to me whereas once the guy goes off the cliff it's like well now there is a real sense of tragedy and horror in this situation and and that i think makes the characters feel like they're really going through something in a way not just sort of the stereotypical teenage and of course the point of this film in a way, I'm I'm uh, not appreciating what the point of this film is supposed to be because they made these kids middle class from nice homes, having these hangups they couldn't put their. It's even called Rebel Without a Cause because they wanted to kind of capture that 
that teen angst that you can't trace to a single source. And maybe I've related to that more as a teenager. And now looking back on it, it's like, no, I'm, I'm more interested in what happens to them after they actually go through something and how they deal with that and, and try to come out to some other end from there. So I should mention, of course, the other two big actors in it are Natalie Wood as Judy and Sal Mineo as Plato. Again, the second half, uh, James Dean's and Natalie Wood's performances get a little stronger for me. I, watching it, Last night, I wasn't totally carried away with them in the in the first part. But Salminio throughout is fantastic. Like, to me, this is the performance of the film, I think. And I don't remember if I felt that way the first few times I watched it, but he's so good in this. And he had a little more theatrical experience than they did. Well, James Dean had been working on stage for a few years and worked with Ilya Kazan, who actually wasn't a big fan of him. He felt that he lacked technique, which is interesting. Um and he told Nicholas Ray not to hire him. And then, you know, he did. And of course, the results speak for themselves. He, he certainly created an iconic role with this. Uh, parts of it work better for me than others. But the, the minio throughout is, is great. And as time has gone on, I think it's interesting to watch. It, we'll get to the Twin Peaks part in a moment and actually use this as a, as a pivot to that. But it's interesting to see how it's perceived. There was a special on the DVD from the 70s, hosted by Peter Lawford with like Sammy Davis Jr. So got this whole Rat Pack vibe. And they're talking about James Dean at that point, 20 years later, where a whole generation has come of age since his death. And, but he's still resonating with them as this now maybe a little bit more mythologized figure of rebellion. And they talk at that point about how even then it's, it's like, maybe especially then in the 70s, Natalie Wood says, well, you know, he's wearing a shirt and tie in it and he's, wants his parents' love. He's not like looking to drop out and this and that. So he's sort of different from today's rebels, but there's still like a strong thread connecting them. And then there's another making of special from the 90s where now it's more of just like a little bit more of a distant nostalgia piece, but the people are still like late middle-aged. They can remember the time. There's a contact with it. And watching it now, this is 65 to almost 70 years in the past. Most of the people involved with it are dead at this point. I remember watching this for the first time in the late 90s, I think, with my parents, and they are from the generation after James Dean and Natalie Wood and all of this. So they're, even though even though I'm watching it as a teenager and they're my parents, they're in a way, is in a cultural sense, younger than the, the teenage characters in the film even. So that's another interesting layer to it. That, that I found uh, fun to watch. Now, the way this relates to Twin Peaks, of course, is that Twin Peaks was taking on the James Dean mythos, the Rebel Without a Cause template, in 1990. So tw 35 years after the film, where it's, it's enough distance that now it does belong to this sort of mistier past. And there's a little bit of a sort of a postmodern quotation mark around the way the show uses that iconography. Like to, to have these teenagers in their black little leather jackets and short hair and meeting out in the woods and kissing in this sort of gentle way, it's it's all it seems very old fashioned at that time in in 8990. And the interesting thing about Twin Peaks is it takes the Rebel Without a Cause conception of teenagers uh, not as these like worldly dangerous figures whom the sort of safe timid adults don't understand it plays with that a little with the knife fights and the juvenile delinquent stuff but really it's ultimately about these kids as as kind of innocents who are confused and upset by the the damaged dangerous world of adults and their rebellion is is like a search for 
some kind of purity for, for some kind of rules to follow. And you get that very strongly with the James Hurley character, who of course is the James Dean transplant in this film in Twin Peaks. Sorry. And you know, down to the name, uh, the fact, uh, pretty similar James and Jim. And of course, both actors playing them are named James as well. James Dean and James Marshall. That's probably the most remarked upon a parallel between any Twin Peaks character and like another famous character is James being just a total James Dean insert basically in this. There's a crucial difference as well though because in Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean's performance is very mannered and eccentric. Uh, He does all sorts of strange gestures. He's always curling up on himself and making noises and moaning and it's an out there performance like he's he's not leaving anything out that is not James Marshall's approach at all he's very stoic and reserved to the point where a lot of people just don't uh, you know enjoy the performance at all and it's funny because the Bobby Briggs character I think does have that element of James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, where, he, you know, he's barking at the end, he's got this coiled energy that's always kind of shooting out in these strange gestures and verbal tics, and uh, he, you know, it, it, the obvious parallel with Bobby is the gang leader in Rebel Without a Cause. In a weird way, it's like they took James Dean and split parts of his iconography. It's almost like James Marshall got to play the James Dean of, like, the posters, the static kind of James Dean brooding and looking out from death, and uh, Dana Ashbrook playing Bobby Briggs, he got to play the James Dean that was actually closer to the actual actor in terms of, you know, I, I mean, he's, a, he's a, I think, a little more over the top in some ways than James Dean, although that's, that's arguable, you know. James Dean is pretty over the top in this film in, in certain ways. Donna is, I think, the character... I've heard comparisons, and I'll actually play one in the archive clips of, from listener feedback, of people comparing Natalie Wood to the Audrey Horn character, seeing her as kind of a Natalie Wood figure. And there is certainly that rebellious streak and that kind of mischievousness like in some of her some of her exchanges with James Dean, but I think ultimately she turns out to be more of a Donna Hayward character. This sort of demure, uh, confused girl looking for somebody to devote herself to in a way. And, you know, Donna does have her mischievous side as well, especially with this, with the Harold storyline. Harold, in a way, I guess you could sort of parallel with Plato a little bit. Uh, it's a stretch because he's an older figure, whereas Plato is very much, uh, you know, he's he comes off as a younger figure, and I think he is supposed to be a couple grades behind them or something. But in the sense of being this kind of lonely person who is drawn in, um, in in Twin Peaks's case, to be exploited, they're trying to find the diary. And in Rebel Without a Cause, it's more sincere. But he feels like he's being betrayed by them in the end. Why did you leave me? And he's running manically through this abandoned mansion and into the planetarium, saying that they left him behind, just like his parents and all and all of that. Another thing, another kind of difference between Rebel Without a Cause and Twin Peaks, although they start from this similar place of these '50s teens dealing with loss and their own responsibility in it and trying to figure out what's going on and sneaking around behind the adults back all of that uh, there's more of like a teen culture in rebel without a cause as soon as twin peaks gets chugging along after a couple episodes after like mike disappears the teenagers 
start acting like adults a lot of the time. They're out in the world interacting with adults. They come off more as just kind of youngsters, young people. You lose some of that element that was so strong in the pilot. The Rebel Without a Cause aspect of Twin Peaks is something that starts off really big as one of the, you know, I think you could put it right up there alongside like nighttime soap drama, detective mystery, these different sort of genres, like Rebel Without a Cause almost as its own genre, the the, the 50s teen melodrama. And that element just is it starts for whatever reason to kind of drip away as it goes along. It's mostly maintained through the Donna James relationship and just the, the earnestness and sincerity of their, of their love and their, their feeling that they have to uh, make things right somehow. That aspect of it is there. But for the most part, it, it kind of bleeds away from the show. The one element near the end, after James has ridden off altogether and you'd think the rebel stuff is gone, is actually probably Donna's story with her dad, where she finds out that Ben Horn might be her real father and her Doc Hayward, the dad she loves, is lying to her and, and not being the father he should. And that relates, interestingly, to the Natalie Wood character in this film. But then I think where Rebel Without a Cause does come back into it in a big way is Fire Walk With Me. And there we kind of find out that all along, the real James Dean character in Twin Peaks was Laura Palmer herself. And in some ways, it's less that she parallels Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause than that she parallels the real James Dean, just as she kind of parallels Marilyn Monroe, this this person who died at their kind of physical peak in there, you know, with with all their emotional vulnerability exposed and kind of went out and are now just legends in people's mind. This this fictional character, in a way, reflects that quality of, of James Dean, the dying young and leaving people trying to sort your legacy and put it together. And this special, the one hosted by Peter Lawford in the 70s, really... Uh, dug into that because they talk about how every person has a different impression of them and you're piecing it together almost sort of Citizen Kane-like where, well, this person sees him as a kind of a standoffish, cruel guy. This other one sees him as just a fun, gentle, loving soul. Another one sees him as this wounded person looking for a father. And they comment on that explicitly in the thing, like, gee, everybody has, they saw a different side of him. It's almost like he was showing them different sides and kind of experimenting to see what, uh, you know, what what they would take him as if he presented one aspect of himself to them and leaving the question of, well, who did he see himself as or was he these different fragments? And that, of course, is very Laura Palmer. And then what Twin Peaks ultimately does, just as in a way Rebel Without a Cause does, although, of course, it's James Dean playing a part, is take us from this legend staring out at us from this fixed picture on a wall to who that person actually was and watching them in action and seeing the flaws and the strengths and everything like that. And of course, in Fire Walk With Me, we go back to the high school. We're back in that environment. Uh, but it's it's just funny to see James, the James Dean character, kind of reduced and put aside to an extent as we see those qualities that we associate with that kind of iconography actually come through with Laura herself. So I find that very interesting. Uh, and finally, with season three, we don't see Rebel Without a Cause uh, really filtering into it much at all at this point. I mean, I should say the 50s teen thing in general. There's moments, there's flashes of it, but a lot of the characters are who come the closest to kind of capturing that 50s vibe, like Steven and the Amanda Seyfried character, blanking on the name. But when we see them in the car 
and backing out from the diner and uh, the, the stuff at the roadhouse with Richard harassing the young girls. A lot of these people are actually 20-somethings in the series, so they're not exactly teenagers. They have that like reckless, raw energy, but they don't have the same like dependence or childlike quality, I think, that the, the teens still have in, in Rebel Without a Cause. Another interesting thread to kind of take through this and, I guess, end on the notion of their sexuality and how it relates to the world and their families. And in Rebel Without a Cause, you have an interesting reversal of Firewalk With Me, where the Judy character is, wants her father's attention and he's uncomfortable giving it to her, saying, you're too old, we can't get... So there's like a trace of sort of a suggestion there of inappropriateness that he is actually the one kind of pushing away from. And then, of course, in Firewalk, you have the abusive father who is doing the opposite. He is, instead of, you know, rejecting her affection, he takes her affection, he twists it into something that it isn't and shouldn't be and becomes this this abusive figure. And in reality, too, I think it's worth mentioning, there is the backdrop of the film is Nicholas Ray having a relationship with Natalie Wood, who is only 16, so she's a minor, and he's the director's hire, and he began the uh, having sex with her before she had even been cast. This is something that I feel like was sort of taken for granted for years, like described as almost kind of a just a romance or something like that and not really emphasizing the just the total exploitative nature of it and uh dennis hopper interestingly lynch figure who of course is in blue velvet later playing on rebel cultures he was actually uh dating natalie wood at this time and he was 18 so he was actually like her age and uh he was upset with you know the, the stories get kind of complicated uh, I'm not sure what the actual truth is because I even just looking into this stuff, there was different versions of it. But Natalie Wood, I think, in life, in some ways, starting with stuff like that and other stories about her being raped at some point by a movie star and uh, you know abused by various people in her life and having a mother who is extremely overbearing and uh, interestingly, apparently, the mother was demanded that Dennis Hopper start stop seeing her, but not. Nicholas Ray, even though he was like in his 40s, uh, because she wanted her career advanced. That was the allegation in the uh, article I saw. I don't, you know, necessarily want to say that that's that was the case, but that was sort of what they were they were suggesting. And so for, you know, Natalie Wood, I think growing up as a child actress, having her childhood kind of taken away in that way very early on, long before Rebel Without a Cause, and then being this kind of troubled person, experimenting with drugs and sex from a very young age. Dennis Hopper, you know, talking about being kind of shocked by how uh, how she approached these things. And then dying, tragically, not, you know, as a teenager, but at 44 in a very mysterious way where people think she might have been murdered. You know, if James Dean going into Rebel Without a Cause is the Laura Palmer character, in some ways coming out of it and going forward... Uh, Natalie Wood starts to seem that way as well. So it's a film with many different aspects of tragedy. Salminio, too, died pretty young, I think, in his in his 40s. That, in a way, is bigger than the film itself, although I do think it's an interesting film and uh, worth kind of picking apart in that way through its legacy in Twin Peaks and, and just in general as a film. 
Here's some feedback from a patron, and uh, they discuss some other films as well. In fact, it's actually a conversation between uh, several patrons who had thoughts about this film and Twin Peaks and uh, some more things as well. This is from Andrew. He's also talking about The Big Sleep and the characters of Carmen Sternwood and, and others in that kind of noir universe. But he gets into the Rebel Without a Cause passage here. It says, slightly related. James is knocking over the lamp while running out of the door, while much maligned. Maybe a subtle homage to Rebel Without a Cause. In this film, James Dean's character senselessly kicks a hole through a portrait before exiting in a similar manner. I also think that Audrey Horne's mischievousness in the pilot episode owes a lot to Natalie Woods' character in Rebel Without a Cause. Jake responds, Andrew, on the subject, wouldn't you say there's a bit of Martha Vickers' Carmen Sternwood in Audrey as well? And Andrew said, there's definitely a lot of do your palms ever itch energy in Carmen Sternwood, but it's the physical resemblance, daddy issues, and adolescence that makes me put my money on the Natalie Wood character. That, and the early demise of Ms. Wood herself, which makes her another Marilyn Monroe, another Laura, etc., which is the role I think Audrey is supposed to play in season one. Of course, we're dealing with types here, which confuses the task of tracing a line from A to B. Resemblance bleeds out. Then again, the passed-out Audrey of season two really closely resembles Carmen Sternwood when Marlowe finds her at the book dealer's house. Jake responds, Well, Lynch did cast Natalie Wood's daughter in Lost Highway, but if we suppose that Audrey is intentionally made to resemble Wood, what does that say about the casting of Richard Boehmer? And Andrew responds, incest. Jake says the Eternal Peaks theme. Now that's it for this episode, but if you have feedback on this or any other episode, please send it to me and uh, I'll share it on an upcoming episode. It doesn't have to, you know, it could be from years ago if, if you find something in the archive that interests you. No time limit on that stuff. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Next month, we'll conclude Ray's Haunted 50s with perhaps the most uh, deeply connected, I guess you could say, of his films to Twin Peaks. Uh, this is a movie that many have connected, particularly to Firewalk with me, I want to say, not just Twin Peaks in general, but uh, it, there's been some writing about this, and I have my own thoughts to share about all that. So here is a preview of that. They don't say the name of the movie in the trailer, so I'll leave you in a little bit of suspense, but I think those of you who know this film or Ray's work in the 50s can probably figure out what it is, and I'll see you next month, middle of the month, as always, for that one. Hardly a day goes by without new and shocking revelations in the nation's press about this drug. And now here it is, out in the open at last. The story of a handful of hope that became a fistful of hell.